0: This is an ABC podcast. It was
1: one of the world's most trafficked exchanges for cryptocurrencies, and now its reputation is in tatters. Yes, this week on Download This Show, Sam Bankman-Fried, the young founder of the crypto exchange FTX, is now denying fraud allegations. But what does such a high-profile scandal mean for the future of digital currencies? Also, what would it take for you to put a computer chip in your brain, and which local police unit just invested in quote-unquote killer robots? Let's find out. This is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. My name is Mark Fennell, and welcome to Download This Show. yes indeed it is a pleasure to be back here on download this Show. i've forgotten the name of the show this is going well i do believe it is called download this show and a very big thank you to ray johnson for holding the fort for the last three weeks i missed you all it's nice to be back and joining us in the studio this week this is going great reinhardt uh Reinhard, Sossen, awesome the uh co-host of the tech for evil podcast welcome back
2: hi mark thanks
1: and managing director of the digital agency coffee and tea meg coffee welcome back hello i was determined that when i came back on this show after 3 weeks away doing god knows what that we would talk about anything but musk and twitter just like just anything <laughs> but and yet somehow i've managed to find a story that i really couldn't avoid talking about doesn't involve twitter does still kind of involve musk meg um Musk, brain, chip, more details, please.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. So Elon Musk, the winner that is Elon Musk, wants to insert a chip into our brains that is going to help us do things like see or walk or any number of things. And I say all of this flippantly because no, no, like, <laughs> no, no. So this is uh, part of the the health
1: company uh, Neuralink, and and, and we have talked about Neuralink at at various different points in the past. And I feel like, um, well, how do I put this, Reinhardt? You have a podcast called Tech for Evil, and I feel (laughs) like technology like this is almost made for you in your podcast.
2: It's a perfect fit.
1: So what do we understand about how Neuralink currently works before we get into the... um, I'd say the universal sense of no. <laughs> uh, let's just talk about what it is and how it works, right?
2: Now. Right. Well, that's, Neuralink is producing what's what's called BCI devices. It's a brain-computer interface, or sometimes called brain-machine interface. So, controlling computers with our thoughts, basically. And Elon doesn't yet have approval from the FDA to sort of sell this product, but uh, it's been tested on animals, and they're awaiting human trials. So it's it's fully implantable it goes all the way into your brain so it's invisible and this is this invisible brain computer interface and it's going to be actually they need to build a special robot to implant it because it's oh this just gets it's better and so better. precise yeah. <laughs> to to do the surgery is just really complex and the chip will process the brain signals and transmit signals back to the motor cortex and um that's, that, that's going to be what's, what's called deep brain stimulation. So imagine a chip has microscopic kind of like threads or tentacles that reach out into the parts of your brain responsible for movement, and then these tentacles can detect odd brain activity real-time, wirelessly transmit it, and if that's not freaky enough, it's also wirelessly chargeable. So the same way you charge your Apple iPhone <laughs> or, your, or your Apple Watch, no! it's, you just put this thing next to your skull and it'll start charging the battery. So
0: like you forget to charge your brain and you just don't wake up? <laughs> All right. So Meg, let's talk about the,
1: before, again, before we get into the deep world of night, no, let's just talk about what other sorts of things it, it could do, or at least they're talking about it potentially doing. What Once you have... The deep brain stimulation <laughs> the fully implantable deep brain stimulation what are you, what are the sorts of things that potentially we could do with it in the future
0: look, take away all the, the bad stuff out, right? If they can do things and help people with spinal cord injuries and, you know, help them walk again, or people that maybe possibly were born blind and can now see or have some type of vision. I'm all for for medical things that can advance, you know, medical devices that are going to advance that and, and help us, you know, regain some of the, the, I guess, the basic things that it are to be human. But it's just, I don't know, I just... I see Elon Musk and I see like 2012 Elon Musk is Tony Stark and 2022 Elon Musk is Mr. Burns. (laughs) And I just can't. Well,
1: he hasn't blocked out the sun yet. But you know what? There's still a few more weeks left of the show. Uh, Brain machine interfaces is a thing, it is something that has been worked on. And there are huge potential uh, advantages for um, across the board in terms of particularly for health, right, Reinhardt?
2: Yeah. And one of the ones I was, one of the claims I was impressed to hear about which I think touched me in a way other than, say, like restoring eyesight and so on, was that we have people that um, just simply uh, can't interact with the world. They're, they are in a, in a, let's say, vegetable state. But this technology could potentially allow them at least to explore the world through the internet because they could be in a hospital bed and use their mind to control a computer and surf the internet. They could also potentially even uh, express themselves creatively through through this technology and that sort of really appealed to me but then on the other hand what else could it be used for can it be hacked Uh, can it be exploited Um, but also for me it's 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 more than just another advanced gadget it's it's this is the this is the first time humanity is now at the doorsteps of this transhumanistic kind of exploration so we don't really know what it means for us and I think in fact we'll be redefining humanity with these devices as to what it is, what is humanity if we've now got sort of ai walking around with us in our organic minds you're not going to stop
1: the technology that's that's the reality right these things will just keep happening but what are the sorts of safeguards you'd want put in place maybe maybe put yourself in the position of of being a um, potential Implantee right. um, is prepare for your brain to be deeply stimulated? What are <laughs> sort of safeguards that you would want as a patient before somebody um, fully implants you?
2: Well, I think to start <laughs> off with it 's about my identity there, there everyone 's going to be carrying around secrets in their life, not because we 're deliberately out to mislead the world but because they 're deeply personal. so for me, I would want to be able to retain. Uh, make sure that no one would be able to f- understand deeply personal things about myself. And it's, it's kind of like at a, at a data privacy level. So I think, <clears throat> for starters, how, how do I know that someone else is not going to know something about me that I don't want them to? And f- as well, how do, we, uh, how do we know that a device like Elon's proposing, which is wireless, couldn't possibly be accessed by other parties, so the encryption level as well, like what 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 controls are around as a, for me as a patient i 'd want to know that i 'd have exclusive access to this technology and all of its benefits, and my information isn 't perhaps being sold on to other parties for some sort of financial gain because now they have something that I cannot remove i 'm not going to be able to like dig in my mind and sort of like rip this thing out once I feel uncomfortable, but maybe even also like a, a, an ability to turn it off like completely turn it off our our iPhones currently don't really ever turn off they're Mm. always sort of slightly hibernating unless you rip the battery out they're always going to be transmitting little pings and blips and things like that so i think the temptation is there i'd want to i would want ironclad guarantees that uh, the human error component or the the human temptation component is somehow going to be eliminated i wouldn't even settle for minimized i'd want eliminated
1: all right, Meg, uh, the hospital gown is on. You're sitting on the gurney. You're floating towards the white light. What are the sorts of questions you're asking the doctor before um, you, t- you also are fully <laughs> <laughs> Well, uh... <laughs> I'm
0: a grown-up.
1: You know, I'm a real, I'm a proper grown-up. Carry on.
0: Um, I, I think it would be the similar things. It's, you know, it's, it's who has access to this. Um, you know, is, is mine the branded version? Is there advertising available? No. <laughs> <laughs> um, but no, it's, it's it's who has access and who has control. You know, I think I mean we've we've seen countless television shows and movies about you know implants that are controlled by apps on your phone and only you and your doctor have access until someone else gets it. There's something that Reinhardt was saying about the the human condition or the human interaction, and 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 what was was stri- striking me with that is that I think as long as these things are built by humans, there's going to be that avi- uh, ability for bias or ability to access things you know it's 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 i don't think we can get rid of that human curiosity as long as it's built by humans if that makes sense
1: what would it actually take Meg, for you to go yes this the 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 benefits clearly definably outweigh all the dystopian (laughs) attributes of this technology is it is is there some massive benefit that it would that would pull you over the line
0: Oh, look, if we're at FDA approval and, you know, you know, it's it's good for humans, $100 million, I'm down.
1: Uh, download this show is what you're listening to. It is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. Mark Fennell is my name. It is our second last episode of 2022 and uh, the world of crypto. The <laughs> year 2022 will go down as a not inconsequential one in the world of, uh, of crypto and um, particularly um, the now, I guess... Imploded cryptocurrency exchange FTX. Um, this case with FTX and Sam bankman fried uh, it seems like it, there's been a change. It feels like there, there was a number of like, you know, sort of scandals attached to, to cryptocurrencies, but there feels like there's something slightly different about this case. Reinhard, what what is that, do you think?
2: Well, it represents the, the collapse of one of the most trusted names in crypto. Um, Sam was called the king of crypto and seen sort of like this young version of Warren Buffett. And FTX being a global exchange, it's got global implications. So people may have lost may have lost life savings here. There, there are a million creditors and $50 billion in debt, supposedly. Um, um, so that, that, that's going to need very serious litigation. And the implication, the deeper implication is um, they've created a token out of thin air. And then, sort of attributed value to it, but without expending any energy to work to create that value so uh, one of the things regulators are going to be looking at is are these uh, cryptocurrencies uh, potentially operating as securities, and that then brings these companies under regulation and under they 're bound to a certain uh, operational framework. So regulators now in the U- United States are scrambling to really uh, evaluate thousands of these cryptocurrencies and see who actually meets this definition uh, of a security. So I think a lot of people are going to be running mad.
1: Meg, part of I think the appeal, and this is in very broad brushstrokes, but I think part of the appeal of the world of cryptocurrency sort of writ large is that it did sort of sit outside, to, to some extent, it sort of sat outside traditional uh, money and investment markets, right? We're now, I mean, this isn't necessarily the only case where something's gone a little bit awry, but we're now seeing sort of a pretty consistent thread of of stories where stuff hasn't played out the way certainly people expected when they put their money in there. What do you think that does to the shape of crypto moving forward? Is it going to be, you know, there's enough people now that it can sustain as its own sort of um, universe or is there going to be a a recalibration uh, among, I guess, among how people kind of psychologically view it, Meg?
0: Yeah, look, I think um, I think there's going to be a massive recalibration. I think that you know since the beginning, I mean, my personal view on crypto is that it is a Ponzi scheme. That's that's how I seem to see it. When I keep seeing all of these things collapse, I, I don't see how it's not a Ponzi scheme. But there are others that believe differently, and there are people that will laugh at me for for saying that. But I think that with with FTX and SBF, Sam Bank and Fried, you know, he was different in that he was the king of crypto, and he was seen making donations to political parties, and you know underwriting venture funds. And, and he was just, he was seen as this sort of guy that was different. And it sort of brought a legitimacy to FTX and a legitimacy to crypto that maybe those of us that were on the edge of understanding it or the edge of supporting it, well, wait a second, maybe, maybe, look, this is a global thing. This guy is being feted all around the world. Maybe this one is a, is legitimate, you know, crypto.com is, is doing sponsorship. Maybe this is legitimate. But then when you see, you know, you see the the interview that SBF did with, um, was it Sorkin or someone recently? And he goes, you know, we were doing, we, we knew what we were doing was not necessarily the right thing or along those lines. And you just go, wow, how can anyone have any faith in cryptocurrency or have any faith in these exchanges? When every time they collapse, the the leaders come out and go, oh, yeah, you know what? We probably did some things we shouldn't have been doing.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think the the political donation part of it da- adds a sort of a spicy edge to it. But at the end of the day, like, I feel like this, I mean, money is going to move in politics, particularly in the US. I, I think what I find fascinating is is this guy, right? I mean, this thirty year old guy at the heart of it,
2: who, the persona, yeah, the carried. persona,
1: yeah. And I, and you know, he's a young guy. And when I think what I was fascinated by, I was like, why did he become? Why did he become considered to be like a respectable face of this? Like, what? Why?
2: Why, yeah. why did that happen? Ryan, do you have a thing? Actually, I I don't know. The honest answer for me is I don't know how the, the rise of of Sam sort of came about and how at such a young age he came to be. But also for me, uh, around anything related with 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 crypto and 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 these technologies, even for me as a as a tech head, they're so far advanced in, in concepts and principles uh, that I, I need to I need to. Actually, reach out to very good friends. Uh, I have a friend, girl, that I call, and sort of he has to advise me. He's my crypto guru about all this stuff to translate it. I don't, I don't understand how someone at such a young age could rise to such a prolific status and do all this, and uh, it, it. I, I don't know the honest answer about the rise.
1: I think I, I mean, I understand how people get young and rich. Like I I understand that he's very smart and he managed to to grow something, you know, and obviously he's he's technically very bright. And like that part of it, I get. What I don't get Meg is how he became to be viewed as sort of like the respectable edge of this, like that beyond just giving money to to politicians, which is, you know, not uh, probably a component to it, but I don't understand how he ended up becoming regarded as being sort of the respectable face of this, there's a million other faces being attached to um, cryptocurrencies. Why do you think Sam Bankman-Free became that, Meg?
0: Why is any one person picked out of obscurity to become, you know, the face of something? I think I think it's what you sort of nailed on the head. I think he's a smart guy. Like, he's an extremely intelligent guy. He understood his way around computers. He understood his way around this. And then I think there was a lot of right place at the right time and having conversations. And money begets money. He, You know, he... I don't want to say he bought influence because I don't know that to be fact, but, you know, he was, he was in the right rooms. He was having the right conversations. He was donating to the right organizations. Um, he was, you know, in the right rooms with the right people. And I think if you've got enough confidence and you've got enough swagger, you know what you're talking about. You can rise to the top. We've seen it a million times in every industry.
1: Does the does crypto blink at this or does it, uh, does it just keep carrying forward? People just move over to different... Um... Different uh, trading platforms
2: now, right? Oh, this has this has implications for just about every currency. The prices on on currencies have deeply been imp- impacted by, by FTX across the board. It's really been an, a, a confidence knock. This whole thing they were, they they really were a shining light for quite a lot of people. I I imagine that that trend might rebound potentially in the future, but I crypto has a habit of doing. Yeah, it, like it, has a habit as, of doing as, that as
1: an industry. It has a habit of going down everything is a disaster and then somehow everything bounces back up again but
2: what i think is different about this one worth noting is that u.s regulators are going to have to act and they're going to have to do it quickly and i think it's going to really uh really bring transparency to companies that perhaps haven't had it before and and some of i think that that will really go to the core of what these companies are about the whole decentralized versus centralized model which is you know sort of Speaks to how finance globally should be run, and so on. So, I think it will. Re- this one, this one's probably a bit different. I think.
1: All right, download this show is what you're listening to. It is your guide to the week in media, technology, culture, and killer robots. Yes, uh, the, my favourite headline of the week uh, came courtesy of the BBC, which runs the headline: San Francisco to allow police killer robots. Um, Meg, did nobody watch RoboCop? Like, that's my that's that was my first question here. What is it? Or Terminator, or literally any movie of the '80s that uh, that involve robots. Um, so, what is San Francisco actually talking about doing?
0: <sighs> it's a big, the, the exile. longest,
1: most pained exhale I think I've ever heard. Or yeah,
0: there. yeah. So, look, I, it, the, these things astound me because I look, I love technology and technology is awesome, and I want to know that we're using technology for good. And then you hear stories about the San Francisco Police Department wanting to arm robo- robots with lethal force, and you just go, but, but. But why? And why? And and then you open up a whole other conversation about military force in the U.S. and don't get me started. What they're trying to do, the question that you asked me, is basically they have these robots and they're looking to arm them in a way that it it could be lethal. But it's a various it's a number of things, whether it's, you know, sandbags or or um, rubber bullets and use these and deploy these robots in instances where it might not be safe to deploy their own Cops or, or or humans.
1: Worth pointing out, Reinhardt, that this isn't by all means the first time it's happened. I, I noted that in 2016 in Texas, uh, police used something similar. Is this something that you think is actually going to happen more often?
2: Yeah. Well, actually, hundreds uh, of local police departments around the world, particularly in the United States, already have some form of this, and there are various forms. You've got dog forms and humanoid forms of these sort of police robots, and 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 one might even argue that a camera and a screen uh, that police have been using now for decades are uh, uh, some form of robotic policing. I think to your point about the argument, you're right. I think we've seen a trend around this argument before, which is here's a novel and unprecedented power uh, that this various authority wants to have, and we're only, quote, unquote, only going to use it in emergency circumstances, and we're only going to give this power to certain people. But then we very quickly forget that they will be able to define what an emergency is, and they'll also be able to nominate the people that get to use this power. So that leaves us kind of at the mercy, uh, once again, of of something that could be corruptible and quite... Uh, Quite powerful. and Meg touched on this as well, that this is essentially military technology in civilian application. I think we've crossed quite a threshold there. If we take the example of, say, drones in the battlefield, and now what we're saying is we're going to take them out of the air, put them on the land, and potentially arm robots for the police department to use in various emergency circumstances, which, like I said they'll get to define. And the people on the button, we are not go- the, with their finger on the button, we're not going to know who they are. We've crossed a really big, it crossed a really important threshold psychologically because it then puts that person, uh, the person with the finger on the button has a much lower psychological threshold to cross in order to push that button. They're not in the room. They're not face-to-face with the human. They're not in that human interaction in the moment. So this the disembodied from the violence, disembodied,
0: it becomes a video game.
2: Yeah,
1: and I guess the the thing that was sitting with my my brain was like, well, how much worse? This is going to sound awful. How much worse could it be? But you're right, I guess Reinhardt, which is that uh, the the grade of technology we're talking about and the removal, the, the physical, the psychological removal is a really interesting point. Meg, how do you think this changes? Because I, I do know that there, particularly in the state of California in the U.S., you do have to keep um, an inventory of military-grade technology, which I imagine this would fall into. How do you think it changes the nature of policing when uh, I guess the people on the trigger are potentially removed from the peril?
0: I mean, I could, I could go on for hours about policing in the U.S. I mean, I come from a, a, a nice part of Dallas and we have military-grade vehicles in our in our police department, and it makes absolutely no sense um, to me why you need that level of of weaponry. Um, I would definitely think that these things would fall under you know the military grade, and you'd have to be fully you know licensed, trained, whatever, skilled to use them. But I think I think what Reinhardt said was was he nailed it on the head when he said you know if you're just sitting in a room and you're removed from that, yes, it takes the human emotion out of it, so that you know the optimism. And, optimist in me goes, okay, the human emotion is out. They're only going to use it when they really have to. It'll be a clear cut, emotionless action. But then if it's a clear cut, emotionless action, is that just a video game? And is that going to lead people to do things that they wouldn't normally do if they thought it through properly?
1: You do have to wonder if there's, you know, a a bunch of lessons that can be taken from the last two decades of drone warfare right you do have to wonder that there'd be a bunch of research that's gone into and this is all very dark and i appreciate that but i do have to wonder if the last two decades of of drone warfare the united states might have acquired some knowledge and i'm sure uh, certainly not they're not the only ones but they might have acquired some knowledge about the psychological impact of executing um executing military actions from afar and what that does to people and, and how that changes the decision-making matrix. And I'd be interested to see how much of that they're allowing to inform, I guess, some of these decisions. And I, and we don't necessarily know the answer to that, but it'd be, but I, you'd want to hope that something, something could be learnt from that period. Uh, I wouldn't necessarily, again, I'm not framing this as a, I'm not framing this as a, like a, well, that'll make it better, but I do, but the fact of the matter is that the, this has been the direction that you know, warfare has been going into some degree for uh, for some decades now, and you do sort of wonder what what lessons can be taken away from
2: it, Reinhardt. Um, the thing that comes to mind through your question there is the pushback that some of this has been getting. When drones were introduced as a concept in military in military circles on the battlefield, there were there were there were a lot of conversations about that twenty years ago. It's like how could that work? What would what would that mean for us as uh, as human beings if we've got these robots out there fighting for us? What advantage does that put in, how does that change uh, warfare generally because you now have countries like the United States vastly superior and advanced and outnumbering smaller countries with the ability to kind of act act very um, very powerfully uh, on the global scene. But there was a lot of pushback then, but then that pushback didn't really eventuate to anything. But what I do like about the police robot story, because perhaps it's more on the civilian level, is that there has been pushback in in New York, actually. They deployed... Uh, Boston, uh, a robot made by Boston Dynamics, I think it's called DigiDog or something like that. And there was there was backlash from the community, and they actually withdrew the robot because there was there was a lot of mistrust in the community around that. And, but I think they the community realised that something had been crossed there. But when it comes to the whole military side of things, I think that's that's very different because governments can kind of I think that there there aren't as quick check and bal- checks and balances in place for them if they want to move in a particular uh, direction militarily. So the drones, I think, I think are subject to a different kind of check and balance. It's not as easy, I think, for the community to push back. Mm.
1: And finally here on Download This Show, you get on the plane, you put up your tray table, and then they tell you, put your phone in the airline mode. And you think to yourself, yes, but why? You know who else is asking that question? Europe's asking that question. Uh, the EU have announced that potentially the end of airline mode, Meg, uh, what's happening?
0: I actually really don't like this, but I'll explain it first. (laughs) Thank
1: you. I appreciate that.
0: And then I'll tell you why I don't like it. So, yes, airplane mode. It's that, you know, the little button that we all put on our phones that basically disconnects the Wi-Fi, disconnects any of the sort of the, the outbound, inbound communication that your phone might be having. Because when you're flying, you don't want to be interfering with any of the radio or types of communication that the airline needs or airplane needs to actually fly the plane right? That's important, flying the plane from destination A to B. So, yes, you turn your phone off. Now, the EU has come out and said, well, wait a second. Now, we know, we understand that 5G is is problematic for some people. In the US, 5G has been problematic for the airlines. But what they're saying in Europe is is we're on a different level. Our 5G is different, and it's not, it's not interfering that C-band issue that the US is having. It's not the same issue that we're having in the EU. So, We think here in the EU that you might be able to use your phone in its full capacity on airlines soon.
1: My question is, what's the point? Right, like if you, if you're in the air, you're beyond the reach. I mean, say for like the two, three minutes before you like take off and and land, like it's a functionally pointless anyway. You might as well save battery, right? Sorry, this is just me. Oh, being no, but this is very leads basic to w- traveler.
0: Yeah, but this leads to what I don't like. You can now make phone calls on the plane, and I'm not okay with that. We do not need people making phone calls on the plane. Can you imagine Karen in the middle seat calling her aunt for eight hours?
1: I mean, I can.
0: You just experienced it, probably. No, I'm
1: (laughs) I'm not. (laughs) not. Karen was lovely. Uh, They're making pumpkin pie for Thanksgiving.
2: Anyone who's ever worked in an open plan office probably (laughs) knows exactly what. I'm I'm with you, Meg. I'm totally with you on this one. I can't imagine being in an open plan office but 20 times smaller, surrounded by 100 people all talking to Aunt May about what they had for breakfast. I, I do not want it. Um, all right. Well, if you are one day tempted to uh, have a
1: deep, long, meaningful conversation with somebody at 30,000 feet, uh, let us all speak together in unison on the second last episode of Download This Show for 2022 and say, just please don't. Please don't. Just watch Top Gun Maverick for the 14th time. And with that, we are out of time. Uh, it has been an absolute pleasure and deeply weird, as is the fashion, uh, to have you both on the show, Meg Coffee, Managing Director for the digital agency Coffee & Tea. Thank you so much for coming back on the show. Thank you. And Reinhardt Susson, the co-host of the Tech for Evil podcast. Thank you so much for coming back on Download This Show. Thanks for having me. You should check out his podcast. And with that, I should leave you. My name's Mark Fennell. Uh, I'm off to watch uh, Top Gun for the third time. <laughs> <laughs> Catch you next week. Goodbye.